Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Oh, thank you very much. Welcome to our sort of cabaret of conversations, Pantasocracy, as we like to know it, and um, we have a very useful crew in today, a shiny gathering of young things, lots of 20-somethings here behind me, and they're emerging Irish voices with a different window, I guess, on a contemporary Ireland. So, first up, we have a musician, he's a rapper and an artist, Jay Yellowell. <laughs> or Jay to his mates. Now, Jay was born in Nigeria, but he's in Ireland since he was 14, producing some gorgeous and sort of highly political music that he's going to share with us later. And next, Jay Yellowell is a writer, actress and performer, Fanula Gygax. Um, she ran off to join the circus in Paris. It was earlier this year and she's now writing some new work, but it's all about um, the ravages of the Celtic boom and uh, collapse and all of that. And then beside her, and I, over here, I, I mean, I've been working on this, I have to admit, so please forgive me if I get it not exactly perfect. Hola, magica dummi. Will that do? Yay! She's a Gaelgore like Fanula and Nigerian born like Jay. She's a student and has a, a music show, Us Gaelga, on Radio Nalife. And one of her college projects is on the politics of black women's hair. And you're pretty gorgeous, Gruga, yourself. <laughs> and we, then we have a poet and painter, Kerry O'Brien. She's an artist who took off to go to Paris as well last year and whose work. Dublin is now part of the Junior Cert, which I suspect is going to bring you as many haters as it does, you know, admirers. So please welcome Kerry. And Delphine Almond, please welcome Sam Blackensee. Sam's Twitter bio is very interesting. It says he's queer, grey sexual, non-binary, trans masculine person. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. Sam is the development officer with Tenny, that's the Transgender Equality Network here in Ireland. And if that wasn't enough, he's a huge Harry Potter fan. But as always, before we get to the bright young things, we're going to start off with somebody a little older and less bright, um, moi, in what we call the panty monologues. You know, they say often that youth is wasted on the young, but speak for yourself, because I did not waste mine. Now, I did not come up with a cure for cancer or negotiate the fall of the Berlin Wall, but I did have a lot of fun. And what I did do was find me. You know, like most young people, I wanted to change the world. Or at least I wanted to change my experience of it. And for me, drag was the way to do that. You know, I remember the very first time that I saw a real, live, proper drag queen. You know, I was 18 years old, my first student summer in London, and my first gay bar. You know, my heart was pounding in my chest. I was nervous, excited. To be honest, I was absolutely terrified because I knew, or at least I suspected anyway, that this was going to be a big moment for me. You know, there'd be no going back after this, and it turned out I was right. Now, it was a dingy basement, you know, worn around the edges, you know, nothing to get excited about, really. But I couldn't have been more excited. Now, it was still pretty early, there weren't many people in, but I hardly noticed or cared, because as far as I was concerned, they were all just invisible. As far as I was concerned, there was only one person in that room, and she was badly lit in a cheap sequin dress on a small stage in the corner. And she was not invisible. You know, she wasn't blending into the background. She was covered in sequins you know, to make damn sure that she didn't. She was big and bright and bold and colorful, and she was reflecting light and demanding attention. She had a bloody spotlight, 
And she was not terrified that her wrist was going to betray her. You know, she wasn't trying to suppress any hint of terrifying femininity. She wasn't pretending to like football or pretending not to like Madonna. Well, actually, she loves Madonna. You know, <laughs> hell, she was lip-syncing to Madonna and living her Madonna fantasy. She had taken all those things that you were afraid of, you know, all the things that they tried to sneer out of you, all the things they told you were weakness, and she was throwing them back at you as strength, you know, as power, as fun. You know, she was giving all those assholes on the night bus the glittered finger, and it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know, I am a firm believer that everybody should do drag at least once, or certainly every man. And I mean do it properly, you know? You know, not like some rugby club stag party in a half-hearted negligee and balloons for boobs. You know, that is not drag, you know, that's mockery. Put some effort into it, the kind of effort that women are expected to put into it. You know, shave your legs, paint your face, you know, hobble yourself in shoes that were not designed for walking, give it a good go. Now, you will not suddenly magically understand what it is to be a woman, but you might gain a little more respect for what they're expected to put up with. And you should do it because it's fun. You know, to break the rules, uh, to be someone else for a while, someone bolder, brighter, stronger, in armor made of sequins. You know, drag is very cool right now. You know, it's more popular than it ever was. It's having a cultural moment. You know, you can't swing a wig on George Street at 3 a.m. on a Saturday without taking out a couple of baby drags. <laughs> and I see them, you know, the baby drags coming in. You know, first time in drag. Looks a bit of a mess, to be honest, but she thinks she looks fierce because she feels fierce. And anyway, looking good is the easy part. That just takes a little practice and probably a little more money than she has right now. <laughs> but don't let the sequins fool you, because these kids are tough. You know, it makes me laugh when I hear those idiots on the night bus, you know, shouting faggot or puffter at these kids, because shouting these words that they mistakenly imagine mean weakness. Because it takes strength to be a puffter. You know, it takes courage to be a faggot. It takes bravery to be a queer. And it takes all of that and more to be a queen. Your drag is inherently punk. It's an act of defiance. It's a two fingers to social expectations. It's an F.U. to your arbitrary rules about how a boy is supposed to act or dress. It's a refusal to conform. It's transgressive. It's confronting. It's discombobulating. But it is not weak. You know, for some of these baby drags, it's actually the very opposite. It is the very first time that they have found their strength. You know, these are often the kids that go unnoticed, you know whose school years were spent not drawing attention to themselves. You know, the invisible kids that you might sit beside on the bus, but you couldn't describe afterwards. They learned the fine art of invisibility as a defense mechanism. It's their lonely superpower. It was safer to go unnoticed because whenever they did attract attention, it was usually the bad kind, the kind that came with a spat faggot or a dead leg. They're the kids who spent their teenage years coiled tight, afraid to relax in case they betray themselves with a girlish squeal or a limp wrist or some other tiny, arbitrary thing that marked them out as different and queer. And then one day, they walk into a gay bar and see their first drag queen. Um, I'm going to start with you, Jay Yellowell. Give us a little of your background, first of all. So you were born in Nigeria, but you've been here since you were 14. Uh -huh. And what was the, the journey here? Yeah. So I wasn't coming just from Nigeria because I was living in Nigeria up until six. And then we went to England and we stayed there for a bit and we went back to Nigeria. And then when I was 14, I was almost done secondary school, in fact. And I came here and then I got pushed back to 30. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so... 
It was a nice adjustment, though, really. Yeah. Like, it was kind of similar to what I was experiencing in England. Like, and But you have also a Jamaican connection. Your dad's Jamaican? Yeah, my dad's Jamaican, yeah. And, like, is that, that was a big part of your growing up? And are you steeped in Bob Marley or whatever? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I grew up with my grandparents. My grandmother, she's Jamaican as well, so... Okay. She kind of raised me around Harry Belafonte and Calypso and, you know, <laughs> Damien Marley and all the Marleys, in fact, and then yeah. Beanie Man, you know, Supercat, the dance hall side of things as well. But then also I was big into Afrobeats, like Fuji yeah. and stuff like that, Fela Kuti. So it's nice, you know, it's nice to have all these different avenues to express yourself. Yeah. But just before, I, I want to explain the J Yellow L. Now, just um, <laughs> for listeners who have never seen it written down, it's J... Yellow. yellow, as in the word yellow, and then L, J Yellow L, which is very clever, I have to say. I won't take the credit for it now. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, my name is Jean-Luc, yeah. so my initials are JL. And when I was younger, see, my brothers are all dark-skinned, so they tease me and call me yellow. And Why, because stuff. yellow, It just not dark was enough. what it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't explain it, but um, yeah, I wasn't dark enough, and um, in Nigeria they call me yellow as well. So one day my bigger brother just called me, ah, J Yellow L. I was like, okay. That's, <laughs> and, and wait a second, so in Nigeria, is yellow like a, it's a term of endearment or it's an insult or? Yeah, well, I'd like to think it was endearment. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about and, and that. And you are 19 going on 20. Going on 20, yeah. God, I have, you know, medications older than you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm going to come over to you now. Um, Fill us in a little bit on your background and all. Sure, yes. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Dublin. I've always lived in Dublin I went to Irish schools growing up and uh, yeah, I knew from a really young age that I loved creative things and writing and performing and knew from a really young age that I kind of wanted to be in the Mm. creative world um, as an adult. So I joined drama when I was a teenager and then studied drama and theatre studies in Trinity. And there I got a lot of experiences of making work, devising and writing plays. So I've been doing that since I graduated three years ago. Okay, and Guy Gax, it's not mm-hmm. your most common no. uh, typical <laughs> Dublin name. So, uh, so my great granddad was Swiss. So I'm an eighth Swiss is my claim to fame with the cool name. <laughs> yeah. And your family owned a sweet shop, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Rohini, where I'm from, my granddad ran the Sugarloaf, which was a famous sweet shop in Dublin. I mean, yeah. That is every child's fantasy, to be from a family that owns a, a sweet yeah, shop. Yeah, but I don't think they actually liked growing up there because they had to work all the time. They no. worked from a very young age in the shop. My granddad was a chef, a baker, and his father was, a, I think, a baker in Switzerland. So they came mm. over here and... <laughs> now, Carrie, I don't want to dwell on this. You're the oldest of the group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, you're, you're pushing 30. Um, so, so now you're all from Dublin. Yeah, I'm from Dublin. Yes. I was born in Kingswood in Tala mm-hmm. and I was raised by a single parent mother. So kind of like the Gilmore Girls and a bit of Absolutely Fabulous mixed together. <laughs> yeah, but my mom, she's like my best mate. But anyway, um, she used to kind of drag me around to work there when I was really young. So I'd spend a lot of time in libraries and secondhand bookshops. I think that's kind of when I got into kind of reading. And Well, you're kind of a, sort of a renaissance woman because a lot of people might think of you as a poet, but you're a painter and you, you do it all, really. Yeah, I'm lucky that I'm kind of a full-time painter and photographer now yeah. as well as being a poet because poetry doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> like I studied art history in college and I just, I'm kind of obsessed with visual art. I love it so my thing now is photographs and painting and writing the whole shebang. I noticed um, you, you, you sort of trotted over the line the same. You know, my mother used to drive me around, but your mother drove you here today, yeah. but she might have also driven a lot of you people here today because she's a Lewis driver. 
She is, yeah. yeah. She's a female oh. Lewis driver, and uh, that's hard. I don't know why that is something really hard about that. Isn't it? <laughs> She's a Lewis driver. It's a really hard job, and like she's been doing it a year now, and all the training and everything. And she has brown hair. Her name is Mary. Keep an eye out. Which line is she on, or do they change? Her? Um, she's on the green line. They they all take a bit of a, a week on the red line every month. They kind of as your penance, you kind of have to do that. You know, the, <laughs> the dangerous line. Um, Sam, we'll come over to you now. You are from Greystones or somewhere, which I also just associate with old people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm. I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in Greystones and I, I lived in Greystones my whole life until about a year ago. I went to an all-girls school in Bray mm-hmm. and then transitioned. Yes, now, now listeners who don't know what you look like, you are sitting here as a very solid, um, handsome, hairy man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I identify as non-binary, but I very much like my beard. <laughs> people are usually quite surprised when I say that I'm trans and that I went to an all-girls school. And it's one of my favourite things to shock people is, is to talk about that. <laughs> but yeah, I transitioned when I was between 17, 18 and, and 19 and kind of... Famously kind of one of the youngest people in Ireland, is that right? At the time, I think it was one of the youngest people to go public about it. Okay. We would now... So I work in, in Transgender Equality Network Ireland now. Mm. So we support young people of all sorts of different ages and there are definitely people who were transitioning much younger than I was at the same time as I was transitioning. Yeah. I think the difference is I had a huge amount of family support and was able to go quite public about it when other people didn't have that, yeah. that option. So I started doing TV and radio around being trans at about 18. And uh, it was a fantastic opportunity to be able to educate uh, the general public, but also to be a role model for for other people coming after me. Yeah. And to tell jokes about being in a girl's school. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In your Twitter bio, like it's a a fabulous sort of, very modern looking mm. bio there. But grey sexual nudity, I thought I knew all of this stuff. I mean, look at me, I'm dressed as a giant cartoon woman. I thought I knew all of this stuff. I've never heard grey sexual before. What is that? So it's part of the asexual spectrum. So it's that I very rarely experience sexual attraction. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Because I thought, oh, he's from Greystones. He's probably into old people. <laughs> no offense to the lovely people of Greystones. Um, <laughs> now, Ola, let's come to you. So, now give us a little your background. Uh, well, I'm originally from Nigeria. I came to Ireland when I was seven months old. Yeah. And yeah, I've just grown up here my whole life. Yeah. And I'm very into like talking about identity. Yeah. As Stuart Hall says, you know, identity isn't fixed. And I just find it really annoying that someone would say to me, I'm not Irish because I'm black. Yeah. Because like, especially now, multicultural Ireland, yeah. you know, and it's just really important to have these conversations and mm. to talk about it because like yeah. people often don't know that when you ask a question, like, where are you really from? That is an ignorant question and yeah. it is a racist question. Yeah. But like people jump at it and they're like, oh, I'm not racist. Like, well, you know, for you, it's super annoying. But sometimes I slightly defend it because people are just curious sometimes. But I get it. And because, of course, obviously, identity was very important to me. And, you know, Ireland's changed a lot. But there was a time when we weren't so cool with the gays. <laughs> and my thing was, I used to feel that my Irishness was called into question because I was queer. You know, they thought, oh, Irish people, that's not Irish. And that used to really piss me off. People just used to assume I was Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> that was how they explained it away, you know. Um, so that you know, so I, you know, that's basically what I want to talk to you all today. In ways, is about identity, and it's interesting that you said it's not fixed because that is something I've learned also as I get older. Yeah, and definitely people have like a stereotypical image of what an Irish person looks like in mm-hmm. their head, even abroad as well. Like I remember being in an I am Irish talk and. The guy there, Owen, was talking about how he went to America 
And the officer there told him, oh, I didn't know there was black people in Ireland. <laughs> so, you know, that just shows like there is a lot but of But, you know, when I was your age, there was literally five non-white people in the whole of Ireland. And all five of those were vaguely famous. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know the, the change has been incredible mm, and wonderful. You yeah. know? But, but I still think, you know, there's a long way to go because you know, there's no integration until they're reading the news. <laughs> you know, you know that's meaning. Oh, it's just so ordinary now. Yeah, just even for me, yeah. like as a Gwelgor of color as well. I mm. think it's important to show that, like, being an Irish speaker doesn't come with boxes or categories. Yeah. It's a language, yeah. and if you want to speak it, it's there for you. Because as far as I'm concerned, you you have a greater claim to Irishness than I do. You know, my Irish is absolutely terrible, and I think that locks me out from a great deal of you know Irish culture. And so you have that totally over me. <laughs> Um, anyway, so uh, let's, let's get some entertainment going, some, a little music. And we're going to start with you, J.O.L. Okay. Nice, nice. Tell us a little bit about what you weren't going to do. And the song I'm going to do is called Nothing Hurt Me. Like I said, it's from my um, EP, Bulletproof. Mm-hmm. And it's a very personal song to me because it's something I learned from um, my grandmother. If I, you know, she likes getting the credit. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Where's your grandmother? Actually, she's in Nigeria at the moment. Oh, yeah. But yeah, she'd always tell me, oh, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words never hurt you. Mm-hmm. So I put in the music just to inspire kind of mental strength and resilience amongst mm-hmm. people, because that's really missing at the moment. You know, everyone gets offended and hurt, but it shouldn't ever stop you in your tracks, if you get mm-hmm. me. You should always try and push forward. And you can't ignore it all the time, but rising above it is the real message behind the song that I'm going to perform. And that's about it, pretty much. Um, <laughs> let's hear that. <laughs> Please, Jane. Okay. So it's the same Physical pain is as brutal as the words we Draw around, they come back around But I hope no one heard me when I said Sticks and stones may break my bones But words will never hurt me not cause sticks and stones may break my bones But even they won't hurt Nothing hurt me now 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 Look, free spirit but I've seen stress Reap what you sow in life and I call that a seamstress Back when the scene slept I was seen as a reject Thought I could walk on water without getting my feet wet Cause I can seek and find a lost vision Giving the clocks ticking A peace of mind but do not look at me and not listen I'm always just another face until the plot thickens There is no winning with this race if we all fall victim Isn't there a category we can all fit in? I was melodic at a time nobody taught rhythms A product of divine hope and confidence At the time I know that vinyls were off limits Notes were not sweet from my esophagus People would climb ropes but my hopes were not finished Evil would find folks But mindful of plot switches Which is more important Fight foes across bridges But it's the same Physical pain is as brutal As the words we Throw around They come back around But I hope no one hurt me When I say Sticks and stones May break my bones But words will never hurt me not cause sticks and stones may break my bones, but even they won't hurt. Nothing hurt me now. Nothing hurt me now. Nothing hurt me now. Nothing hurt me now. 
Physical pain is as brutal as the words we yeah. throw around. They come back around, but I hope no one heard me when I said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Not 'cause sticks and stones may break my bones, but even they won't hurt. Not if it hurt me now. 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 Nothing hurt me now. Nothing hurt me now. Hurt me now. Nothing 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 hurt me now. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Connor. <laughs> yeah, your, your work is very, you know, political. It, it has a lot to say. Is that just like your family's like that, or um, I'd say my big brother probably is. I learn a lot from him, mm -hmm. and he always says he can hear a lot of our conversations and my music. So mm -hmm. I am very, like, heavily influenced by him. Yeah, you know, he's very politically driven, and yeah. he's always on about inspiring people and impacting people yeah. through everything you do. So I kind of put two and two together. So I love doing music, mm -hmm. but I want to impact people as well. So why not impact people through my music? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Now, Fanula, I'm going to come over to you now. We're sort of looking at, in a way, I guess, about identity in Ireland and all that at the moment. Yeah. Now, you're from Dublin, and like a lot of people that I meet, especially through the show, you know, you're Gael Gore, and it's, it's a big part of your life, really. Yeah. Like, I was raised through English, but my parents had Irish, and I went to an Irish school, so it was just a mm. given. It was always just part of my identity. Um, but since leaving college, I've kept it up through work and stuff, and I am really passionate about it, and it's disappointing sometimes when you feel that a huge majority of the country aren't or maybe yeah. don't have the opportunity to be but I think it's hard to learn in schools and the way it's taught yeah. or whatever and then people have negative connotations with it yeah. um, so they haven't been given the same opportunities yeah. so I'm not even really sure how that can change now I think we probably need more art through Irish mm. and I think as well there's sort of this weird relationship with Irish of when things are an obligation you tend to reject them yeah. sometimes. Like, if someone's trying to make me do something, I'll probably not do it. Well, it's much cooler now than it was in my day. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were, because one of the things you just glossed over there was, to, oh, you, through my work, I do a lot of art. Because you were on... Epic, Epic. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. You were playing the bitch, I played right? the bitch, yeah, yeah. It was really fun. It was so unlike me. <laughs> so it was a show on uh, TG Kyra's six-part series, and it was written by someone who had written for um, The Misfits and everything, and it was deemed to be, like, the cool thing or whatever. Mm. It was a musical. Um, and we kind of thought, like, oh, maybe something like this could shift people's perspective of mm. Irish. But it's really hard to get the same viewership with Irish-language things, even mm. if it is really cool which it was because I <laughs> but uh, no that was really good fun now I want you to um, do, do a little piece of work for us um, because you, you you write and one of your other identities of course is being a woman yeah and of course womanhood is 
to the four at the moment because of yeah. the Me Too movements. And like, I think a woman of your age is probably thinking much more about being a woman totally. than your mother might have. Um, totally. Definitely in the last few years, the whole idea of womanhood and being a woman is actually a really, really big thing. Mm. And I think about it quite often and kind of a lot about how lucky I am in so many ways with things like Waking the Feminists or the yeah. Me Too movement or any of that. Mm. Think, wow, I kind of, I'm on that side of that wave. Mm. But I do still think there's a, a long way to go now. Like, I don't think we're there yet at all. Yeah. You know, in terms of coming out about sexual assault and stuff like that, mm. I think is a huge issue. And I'm very grateful to be a young woman now and not yeah. back in the day. Mm. You know, this idea of shame, I think it's still there, but not so much now mm. as it was. I think we're a bit more... Free. And so tell us a little bit about the piece you're going to do for us. So um, I've actually never written anything like this before, so I hope it's all right. But um, I was... <laughs> <laughs> See, that's very woman of you. I hope it's all right. Oh, God, I'm you know, after just... Yeah. Jay didn't apologise before he did his song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I was in Anne McCarrick, um, which is an resi- artist residency in Monaghan. And I just woke up really early in the morning. Anyone who's been there knows like, it's a very inspiring place. And I woke up and it was International Women's Day, which I never remember remember kind of celebrating or feeling any big feelings about and I was thinking god I'm really surrounded by brilliant women and my mom very close to my mom and I was kind of just thinking about my childhood and growing up with brilliant women and how that's impacted but also being a woman now and kind of having to try to be brave and be outspoken and stuff and be ambitious and not to feel sorry about that mm. so anyway I wrote this poem and I made a little short film about it when I was in Anna McCarrick and which that's, you can see on YouTube which you can see on YouTube and did you make that all by yourself, by the way? That, that yeah, you... I'm a weirdo, yes. Yeah. She's out in the woods completely alone. And like I sort of guess there's nobody behind that camera. No, she set no. that up and then ran I literally the... bought a camera and made a little film. So that's it. It's called The Girl in the Tree. She ran along mucky tracks with grazed knees and knotted hair, scratching hands on branches and refusing to care that her dress was torn. That's what the other girls wore. But she was more content at war with birds, insects, neighbours, at the top of a tree unseen where she could be she and see the world for what it really was. Queen of the trees. And let roam with freedom in the jungle of imagination where who cares about dresses and Barbies when the world is full of monsters and monkeys. Five years old inhaling cigarette smoke from the queen of stories her grandmother. We'll call her granny and she would give you a serious look with fierce eyes and reply, Madeline. Madeline is my name and I would be ashamed to be called granny because you were born with a name for a reason. Your name is important. I am me, Madeline. And she'd smile with glee and light another cigarette and laughed through stories too young for the little girl's ears. But the girl would sit, wide-eyed for hours and hours, in awe and full of grawl for these manaw who would shape her into the woman she would become but didn't quite know it yet. A mother and grandmother, allowing her to be heard, to be counted, to laugh at jokes she didn't yet understand, to learn that sometimes it's not all grand and that women can be broken but come back strong. Mother, daughter, grandmother, sipping tea at old tables, not understanding at the time the beauty of those moments, the frailty, the inner fire and sensitivity instilled in the little girl who ate chocolate biscuits and let stories of women seep into ears and now, years later, sit as memories cherished and which she knows shaped her.
and the echoes of stories will linger in chambers for years and may be imparted on ears of other little girls who will watch in wonder. But time passes and gone are the days of the reckless little girl in trees who buries pink dresses and thick earth behind the shed because she's ahead of the game and won't have the shame of being called a girly girl with brushed hair. The little girl becomes a teenager, full of ferocity and feelings, and finds a pack of other creatures, sisters, working their way through this jungle, this tunnel of confusion, a world of crumbling anxiety and expectation of beauty, and doubts that maybe we're not good enough, not pretty, smart, original, skinny enough. An outside eye grows and throws the girl into wondering what others think, how men perceive her, how her thighs are too thick, how maybe she shouldn't say things that might offend, shake or rattle. Better to keep silent, dream within reason, think about ambition and don't be unrealistic. But the woman is surrounded by a pack of Giselles, of sisters, companions and a mother braver than any other. And she knows that the world is changing, that times are turning and waves are crashing down on what was, what was expected and this is the time to be she. The little girl sits in a tree and watches down on 2018. Grazed knees and scratched hands, knotted hair and not a care what anybody else thinks. She watches in awe of all the manaw in Ireland who speak out and are brave, who get on planes, who are bold and don't take no for an answer, who speak truths that need to be awoken, who are kind and push scared little girls to be brave and outspoken, who live in freedom with a fire in their bellies. The little girl watches in awe of all these manaw and smiles and hopes that one day she will be one of them. Thank <laughs> you. Um, watching you from behind there, I think, God, there's a lot of hair in this room. And so, well, I want to come to you about the hair thing. Yes. Because um, you're doing college work on politics. Of yeah, my thesis is on the politics of black women's hair. And there, I'm really looking at how the black woman has subaltern and how blackness is being policed, mm. especially by hair. And I'm looking at it from an American context because yeah. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the author, said that if Michelle Obama wore her hair natural while Obama was in office, mm. Obama wouldn't be elected. Mm. And I really believe that. Like, Yeah, it's hard to imagine her with, yeah, you know, with, with like her braids natural fro or whatever. Or afro, yeah. yeah. So like when you're in that position as a black person, especially as a black woman, you have to live up to that black respectability. So that's how I'm going to be looking added in the thesis mm. and also I reference like a Solange and Beyonce because like Beyonce's album well, Lemonade you have to reference Solange yeah. and Beyonce <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't yeah. not <laughs> yeah like Beyonce's Le uh, album Lemonade was just so politically driven yeah. and it was really saying like look I am Beyonce but don't forget I'm a black woman mm. and like that phrase she has in her song sorry you know you better call Becky with the good hair yeah. That's a very interesting phrase. I like that whole concept of good hair that comes stems mm. from slavery. From slavery? What's the connection? Well, basically in slavery, there was a kind of division between good hair and bad hair. And the bad hair was seen as like more Afro-ish yeah. kind of texture. And like good hair was seen as like looser curls, more mm. straight. Yeah, it just shows like how that influence is still there. Mm. And like... I've noticed with myself, I tend to wear braids now yeah. more often. And 
the only reason mm. I wear braids isn't because like I don't want to wear weaves or whatever, but like it helps me grow my hair as well. Yeah. And it's also very easier, right? Yeah, it is because mm. I feel like in school I was always trying to be something I'm not, you know, wearing the straight weaves to fit in, so I don't yeah. get asked questions. So how long did it take to do your hair and yeah. stuff like that? Because sometimes people often like to like touch your hair and stuff, and you know, like it can get yeah. annoying. And like, I'm also looking at the cultural appropriation yeah. aspect as well. Cause like, when you see like Kylie Jenner and like Kim Kardashian, you know, sporting like cornrows and braids and things, like, that's fine. But like, people were saying like how they started that trend. And that isn't a trend. Yeah, that's nonsense. Yeah, like, that hair has been around for yeah. centuries. And like, I'm not saying like, no one, sh- yeah. why women shouldn't braid their hair, but know the history like yeah. know where it comes from don't say that Kylie Jenner started it you know <laughs> <laughs> well, well I don't want this to go too far now because African lady wig shops you know have been my life um, you know, because there was a time when you could not get any you know wig accessories in this country and you had to go to you know to the African ladies wig shops and they'd have all the glue and the whatever you know the, um, yeah. but you have a, a, a poem you've written about yeah um, about hair yeah, yeah. yeah. so I, I just always wanted to write poetry as well because like I have a boyfriend that's a poet God, it's amazing the resurgence in poetry isn't it when I was your age nobody wanted to be a poet you'd die rather than even admit you read poetry like, <laughs> and, you know now you're not quite my age Carrie but you're closer <laughs> but like when you were in school would you have imagined there'd be this many poets around it's amazing no and I actually I hated poetry in school I was afraid of it you know mm. there was all this like really weird boring you know Wordsworth poems and stuff yeah. you know I never understood it but now there's just such a like exciting literary community in Ireland yeah. people like Emma Kerwin and like even today like three of us have poems like uh, yeah I just think yes. it's amazing yeah. I'm sorry we got off to, tell us about your poem about um, the hair yeah so basically I kind of referenced Salon's album in it A Seat at the Table how it's hard sometimes as a black woman like how you have to fit in and that mm-hmm. societal pressures and that's kind of what I'm talking about in the poem that you know enough of all this mm. societal pressures just let us be you know yeah so let's um here society has whispered in her ear if she doesn't have straight hair she's not pretty enough not professional enough she's not enough she struggles as she tries to find a seat at the table. She doesn't attain the silkiness of good hair. Her four C curls hang proudly from the roots of her head, and you stare right back at her, struggling with fear, because her strength overrides your disapproving eyes. Thank you. Let's stick with the poetry and I'm going to come over to you, Kerry. So tell us a little about your background. Yeah, um, so like I said, when I was in school and everything, poetry was this really frightening, scary thing that felt like a crossword puzzle that I didn't understand. <laughs> and so I'm really glad to see that's changing now. A lot of more poets are going also, into schools. There was no modern poetry, I felt, when I was doing it. But you, know, you have a poem on the junior cert. I don't think there was any, you know, 30-year-old poets who had poems on the junior cert when I was in school. Yeah, no, the same with me. It's really strange. So Dublin UNESCO made this little video of my poem, Dublin. It's me sitting on the stairs. <laughs> and big bright cute, lights. the video. Yeah. It's called Dublin, and um, you can find it on YouTube easily enough. And yeah, and then someone just told me randomly that it's on the junior cert syllabus, so all these schools you didn't shown. even know. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it happens in poetry. People just kind of tweet you. I thought you. it'd be like some big ceremony. You get like a certificate or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, or some money. <laughs> but yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did, you, um, did 
do they pay you for putting your thing? No. <laughs> Not even for printing it in the books, textbooks. It's well, because it's the video, I think, as well. But I've heard it's all kind of yeah, life of being a poet. But um, you know, but eventually I mean maybe the Nobel Prize or something will kind of cash <laughs> yeah. in when I'm 90. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you keep telling yourself that. <laughs> Not that I don't think you deserve it. I just think, yeah, these things are fixed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just really it's really cool because they're introducing uh, modern poetry and it's so funny because you know in school you have to study poetry and you're worried about exams and everything. It's like, oh that's me now. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at my face. Yeah. Now, but, uh, I'm only going to attempt to remember the quote exactly, but I read you what you were saying what your work is about, and it's <laughs> it was like about death and you know, all the big things. Um, oh yeah, sex and death. Yeah. Sex and death. Well, I'm Scorpio, <laughs> so that's me. Ah! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a Scorpio moon, so there you go, yeah. <laughs> so what do you write about? So yeah, I'm a bit of, I'm supposed to be, I'm a strange poet in that I write a lot about grief and intimacy. I'd be very active. I do a lot of activism with like fundraisers and anthologies which would go towards homelessness and Dublin Ray Crisis Centre. Mm. But in my actual work, I'm not that political. So it is much more about kind of universal things like death and grief. And I find that um, my work seems to resonate with a lot of people. So there was a tiny poem I had called Wish, four lines long in the Irish Times last year. And a lot of old people uh, wrote to me saying it gave them hope about dying and that kind of thing. And in a really strange way, I've actually, my poems been read at four funerals and a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I, I suppose I, it's more of a kind of psychological healing process yeah. I suppose probably why I write you know but anyway when I graduated it was 2009 and um, some of you probably aren't even born then but uh <laughs> but when I graduated it was a really bad time the recession had just hit and like mm. so many of my friends emigrated and so many of my best mates to this day live in London and Paris and New York and never came back and there was all this anger and you know all this kind of thing and I kind of hated Ireland for a while so I did go away but I always I'm such a homebred and I've kind of realized that just I always miss Dublin so much I actually love Dublin I love being Irish you know I love being you know being able to represent Ireland on the international stage being an Irish poet yeah. and stuff I'm very proud of it and then I kind of realised too that you know okay I do want to live here I want to have a great life here and maybe I can change things so like that with the activism with looking at the stars we raised over 21,000 for the Dublin Simon community yeah. and then in May um, we did this art pop-up um, called Take Heart for the Dublin Ray Crisis Centre see I think you can actually I'm only one person and I can make a difference so I want to yeah. kind of improve my country as much as I can so this is about how much I kind of love Dublin and don't really want to leave mm. Let's um, hear your poem Dublin I run my hands over this city, know the skin of it, how it opens, don't know if I should go. There's something about the rain, the bitter taste of it, the way it gets right to you, closer than your veins, and stays. And it's not grey, not in the morning, when you feel like you were born, just to know what it is to walk alone in sunlit streets. It's dark tonight, don't let me go out like the others, without looking back. But if I do, if I go before you, remember to bury me here. It's the only place my bones will lie still. As morbid as it is, I love that last line. Remember to bury me here. It's the only place my bones will lie still. Somehow I get that. I also have this sort of image of there's some junior cert student at home, their mother has the radio on in the kitchen and they walk through and they hear that and they're like, oh, God. (laughs) 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 It's interesting you said that you hated Dublin at 18 or 19, because I hated Ireland when I was 18 or 19 too. And I thought it was boring and backward and, you know, everything too small and, you know, all those things. But Jay, like, what's your feelings about Ireland? Because you came here at 14, so your Mm -hmm. experience is different. I grew to hate it. Mm. (laughs) And I grew to love it again later as I got older, but... See, I think I came here with such a positive attitude because I was mm. being reunited with my mom and my little brother that yeah. I hadn't seen for years. So I was very happy to be here. 
and giving my mum a chance to raise me again. Where, where were you living when you first came to Ireland? Um, Blanchestown. So you were going to school in Blanchestown, but of course, mm. so you weren't the only black face there. Or oh, of course not. No. Yeah, so many. The world has changed. I never felt like I was an outsider, if you like, because mm. I was surrounded by so many people like me, and they were a lot more accepting, if you like, than what well, I'd imagine most other parts of Dublin and stuff like that. Yeah. Because you know they had black friends growing up. Mm. It was easy and it was challenging at the same time. Yeah. Because there's a lot of stuff you need to acclimatize as well. Because you know things like humor and banter and yeah. all that kind of stuff you don't really understand and then you have to start going home and devising okay if i say this this way at that time it'll be funny so, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that so like there so <laughs> you know what i mean so you get used to these kind of things and you learn um sam i, I left you to last because you gave up your privileges of uh, ladies first long ago um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you think about today, you know, identity was sort of part of it. And I think um, older people, of course, they kind of roll their eyes at our obsession with um, identity and all. But yours is, um, well, because it's, it's a more dramatic change in identity than most people's. So how did you, sort of at such a young age, really understand what it was about you that was different? Or That's a question I find really difficult to answer, even now. And so I, at 16, when I was starting to meet other LGBT people, so I was starting to attend Belong To, which is an LGBT youth group in Dublin, and I was meeting all these people who were using different identities and different labels. And it was a real education for me because school did not speak about what LGBT even means. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, I think were mentioned once during my entire... Was it the classic Irish school. Catholic school or...? Yeah, yeah. And I remember pressing my teachers quite hard to bring in stand-up workshops um, when I was in fifth year. So it was after I'd really realised that I was trans. It was after I'd kind of told my so friends stand-up workshops? Uh, it's a week that Belong To runs in oh. November. So it's just trying to get students to start talking about what it was to be LGBT, mm. uh, teachers to start educating about some of the language. Because... There is a huge amount of language around it and there's a lot to learn. But then as my friends started to use these terms around me, I went, oh, okay, so this is how I've been feeling for the past six, seven years. This is why I found puberty so difficult. And then trying to figure out my own gender identity. So as I said, I identify as non-binary. So although I look very masculine, I don't identify as a man. And I use a mixture between they and he pronouns. So for me, my gender identity although it's very important to me, is also a bit of rebellion because I don't believe that uh, gender is a, is a binary concept. I yeah. think there's so much more to gender than just men and women. And the more that I get to speak about my identity, so I'm lucky enough to be able to have, have traveled uh, to a number of different countries um, and speak about being trans and speaking about being non-binary. I was lucky enough to be on the Forbes list in, in 2017. Um, oh, get you. <laughs> on the 30 under 30 list around kind of activists around, uh, from around the world. Yeah. And Sorry, Care, too late for you. <laughs> you missed that bus. But the more that I can form my own identity and speak about it and talk about how it is a bit fluid and I'm using different words now and I'm able to speak about it more confidently now when I wasn't able to do that before gender yeah. recognition came through in 2015. And it's incredible to now have older friends within the trans community. So if being in the heart of a, of a really diverse, small, but very diverse community means mm. that lots of people use different terms. Yeah. There are lots of my older friends who kind of look at me going, now, what are you saying your identity is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do I refer to you? And uh, 
But at the same time, I'm really open to learning and I'm really open to learning about the history of the trans community in Ireland. So one of my heroes is Claire Farrell, who set up a group in, I think, the 70s and Sarah Phillips, who uh, was the Grand Marshal of Dublin Pride this year Mm. and hearing her speak about her trans identity and this incredible, very small community. who all know each other and who are kind of spread throughout the entire island. And uh, it's just, for me, being trans and being an Irish trans person is such a big part of my own identity. And, you know, 40 years ago, no Irish person would have even understood what that meant. Yeah. Um, So it's really exciting, I think. It is. And I think, uh, so in 2015, Ireland passed an act which allows trans people to self-determine their gender identity. Mm. So what that means is we can sign a piece of paper and say we have a solemn declaration that our gender is a man or a, is a woman no. and right now we're actually trying to change that and try and bring in identities uh, like my own so I could mm. say that I identify as a non-binary person and that is a valid identity under the, yeah. the eyes of the state and that's something that we're really excited to actually have that conversation. I mean and the other thing is that, that I totally get it but my experience is very different because I've always wanted to treat these things as lightly as possible. And so it bothered me that people didn't want me to be Irish because I was queer or whatever. But I just threw glitter on that. You know what I mean? (laughs) And and so for me, my life was always about playing down the importance of the labels. I didn't want to be put in a box that said it was Irish or whatever. I just wanted to play with it all. And I wanted to be able to change it from day to day. And then I meet other people who, to them, it's very serious and important. And that is something that I've had to sort of uh, come to understand, I guess, in a way. Because I wanted to be playful about everything. But that's also why it's interesting to speak to someone like you, Jay, who, who came to this place that I thought of as being very set. But you came here, and it seems like water off a duck's back. You were happy to take on the next label. And I think Sam is in a way, and I think all of you young people are much better at that. Yeah, definitely. See, my own thing on identity is very different in terms of like identity. When people label you, there's a lot of connotations and stigmas that come mm. to certain labels. And I don't like those to limit me at all or even for me to take on those limitations subconsciously. Mm. I've met a lot of people who are black and immigrants as well. And then they come in and they have this very negative attitude. And, ah, this place won't let us go anywhere. So we just conform. But I don't think you should adopt that approach as in, oh, I can't go anywhere because I'm black or I'm so disadvantaged because I'm black. I don't let it limit me. I don't think anyone should let it limit them yep. either. And I come from a very empowering family. So I've Empowerment's a big thing for yeah. me and not letting those kind of stigmas and, and stuff define me. Well, the other thing, of course, is that, you know, there's so many identities that you can you know, take on or, or whatever, and, but some of them are obvious to other people and some of them are not. So mm. race or gender most of the time, and all these, you know, people read you and they make an assumption about you and put the label on you. But then there are other ones like Irishness, which is not readable. I mean, if you're sitting in a cafe in Germany, they'll just think you're German. So that's always been interesting to me and, and maybe why I enjoy painting up and changing you know, my labels very obviously on, on, the, on the outside. But like, for example, Ola, you, you know, you've got your braids and you're you know, dark-skinned and you, know, you don't fit the typical image of an Irishman. And that, that's a bother or something you rejoice in? Well, the thing is, I don't see it as a bother because I am proud to be of mm. African origin. You know, I am proud to be an Irish speaker and I am proud to be Irish. But like, I just want people to think about what they say and what they ask. That's my main issue. And I'm even putting like, working on putting a video together and it's called, What Does Irishness Look Like? Yeah. And 
it's just to really challenge people's perceptions of what mm. Irishness looks like. You know, you can't, especially in 2018, yeah. like Ireland is so diverse. Like we, we need to mm. get out of the box of what yeah. we think Irishness looks like and really yeah. just challenge that. Well, the other thing that used to really bother me about being queer was having the constant coming out thing. You come to this time and you tell everybody, all your friends and your neighbours, and, and it's all cool. But there's always the small comings out that continue all through your life. Because every time you sit and get into a conversation with somebody on a train, they will assume you're straight, you know, until you mention Mariah Carey. Do you know what I mean? And so, so at least with being black, you don't have to do that. You know, that. But Sam, you have to do that all the time. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons I tried to go so public. It was like I could tell everyone all at once by being on TV. But uh, especially being non-binary, nobody would ever think of my gender identity as anything but male when they look at me. So for me, being non-binary is something that I have to say daily and probably explain to a lot of people because yeah you know I, if, at least if you say oh i'm gay everybody knows what that means but i think a lot of people still wouldn't you know yeah. marjorie you know in kilchama <laughs> you know yeah and I'm, and I'm looking forward to a time when we have that universal understanding of what it is and i think we're getting there with trans as a whole yeah. Um, and I think that non-binary will be hopefully soon behind it. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a few years off. I'm happy to, to keep explaining until that point. Well, it's funny because <laughs> um, just yesterday, I have a good friend, uh, Mix Justin Vivian Bond, who is a famous trans uh, performer. And um, she, she wrote this piece about getting her hair cut. And she was in the salon that she always goes to. And an older lady sitting beside her in the salon asked her all the questions. And, you know, Vivian's a wonderfully nice, delightful person and was happy to sort of ask questions. But it, even after all these years, and she's one of the most famous trans people in the world, it still bothered her later that she had to be nice about it and she had to explain to a total stranger quite personal things. You know, even though the, the lady was being totally, totally nice and just openly curious. And at the end, she said something that really struck with me. She said, since I was a child, and it turns out even today, the only time I can be 100% totally myself is when I'm alone. It, that really struck me as a kind of a sad thing to say, but I get it, because nobody has any questions about her when she's alone. She can wear what she wants, walk as she wants, dance like she wants, but that is a slightly sad thing to say, isn't it? Mm. Um, but I think a lot of people feel that they've just never thought about it. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, we all will know. Yes, I know. I know. It's been on my mind all day. Like, it's yeah. such a, you know, that's like you have this um, line, Carrie, to say that a, a poem can be an explosion. Mm. Um, and for me, that was an explosion, that line. So we are going to bring this cacophony of ideas and gender and race to uh, a conclusion. But with you, Jay, again. Uh, so what are you going to do us out with? Cold in the summer. It's also from my EP, Bulletproof, as well. And I presume you're going to ask me what it's about. I am, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. um, so I wrote Cold in the Summer during the height of the publications of police brutality and black oppression. It was something I really connected with on a very painful level, to be honest, because I have a lot of family in America as well, in the mm. States, and it could have easily been, or it could easily be one of them. Or if I were there, it could have easily been me in those situations where you're completely vulnerable at the hands of the law and there's only one winner. Yeah. So that song was kind of a very emotional one for me to write because it was something that I really represent with and, you know, the whole mm. racism. And so this is the same reason I write all my songs, express 
my frustrations. So <laughs> <laughs> Good. You know, when I was 19, if I had to write a song, it would have been about, you know, sequins and something, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I admire this about you, Jay. Okay, let's say, yeah, let's hear it. Nobody's putting shackles on my hands America, England, France, book this in advance We keep running, man, and I don't mean to dance Yeah, I don't mean to dance We keep running, man, it's time to take a stance Yeah, it's time to take a stance We keep running, man, and I don't mean to dance We've been running since We can't turn around cause we've been running rings Turn around, it's time that we stop running things I've been running, man, I cannot run again Trying to turn this to a renegade Trying to turn our culture to a memory Reinvent ourselves, time we renovate We didn't send ourselves outside the heaven's gates I'ma turn around, I'ma fight my battles I will burn the ground when I ignite my shackles Afraid of getting caught up by your shadows A way to serenade the spares and arrows Yeah, could've been Norton Sterling, Sandra Bland Could've been Richard Perkins, Black Oppression All that the kids are learning, we can end it as long as we're all determined as long as we're all determined, we can end it as long as we're all determined. Cold in the winter, cold in the summer too, and we'd cold in the winter. Oh, oh, I'm cold in the summer too And we don't die when we want to No, we just, we just die when they want us to Oh, oh, I'm cold in the winter Oh, oh, I'm cold in the summer too And we don't die when we want to no, we just, we just die when they want us to. Oh, oh, but nobody's chaining me, not wearing chains. Nobody's putting shackles on my hands. America, England, France, book this in advance. We keep running, man, and I don't mean to dance. I don't mean to dance. We keep running, man, it's time to take a stance. It's time to take a stance. We keep running, man, and I don't mean to dance. That is it from this episode of Pantasocracy. I would just like to thank my guests for making me feel like a pathetic underachiever. Um, Fula Gygax and her uh, beautiful hair. Um, Carrie O'Brien and her beautiful hair. J-L-O-L and your gorgeous hair. Um, Ola, your absolutely beautiful hair. And Sam, your beautiful beard. Um, <laughs> thanks to our audience for being with us here as well. You can catch up on all past episodes of Pantasocracy and check out all the various performances we've had over the years on pantasocracy.ie. Thank you and uh, good night. Yeah.